I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. Boy, we probably got to be a business probably of about 40 million without anyone who had experience in retail, in manufacturing, in apparel, or in business. In 1972, a landmark civil rights law was passed entitled Title IX, which requires gender equality in all aspects of publicly funded education. Missy Park was one of the first cohorts of students to benefit from Title IX during her college career, which allowed her to play a number of collegiate sports. Following her student-athlete career and after working in the outdoor apparel industry for a handful of years, in 1989, Missy realized there was a massive hole in the market for women's sports apparel. So starting with a self-made, crappy mail order catalog and inventory piling up in her garage, she launched a new women's sports apparel company and called it Title IX. Title IX is now a multi-million dollar company with stores and states across the U.S. and a thriving e-commerce business. On this episode, I sat down with Missy to talk about how to gut it through your first few years, how to stay independent and not take external capital, and the best advice she's had for others. Oh, and there's some really good stuff about parental leave in here as well. So you actually have, I, I love how far back your origin story actually starts. Uh, could you talk to us about where you were in your life before Title IX? Ooh, when you say, I love how far back your origin story goes. I don't know if that's... Uh, way back in 1989 or <laughs> way back in 1962 when, when I was born. Um, and I, I would say that almost everybody's origin story begins at probably the beginning. Um, so I was born in 1962, which means that I came of age and enrolled in high school at the time when Title IX had to every public university and high school, anyone that received federal funds had to be in compliance with Title IX in 1972. Um, well, it was passed in 72. They had to be in compliance in 1976. So I was one of the very first uh, young women to go all the way through high school and all the way through college with sports being I wouldn't say it was my vocation at the time, but certainly my primary eye vocation all the way through high school and college. And I would say that the seeds for um, making my living in the world of sports and fitness probably were sown there. Mm, I love it. Um, and can you just talk to us about what the experience of having Title IX with you was like? Uh, like a third child. Yeah. <laughs> for everything that is good and bad about that, right? I mean, when a friend of mine 
I told her I was pregnant with my first child. She told me, you missy, be prepared for the worst, best thing you have ever done. <laughs> um, and I would say the same thing is true of starting Title IX and having it with me all of these years. I mean, it, it predates all of my significant relationships with the exception of my my biological family. Um, so it is with me first thing when I wake up in the morning and they're in my dreams. <laughs> Sometimes I wish it weren't. Um, but it has been both. Yeah. I think the best way really to talk about it is it is really like a third child. Um, these people that sell their businesses and, go start another one and then sell that one and then go start another one. I feel like that is a foreign being that I I don't even understand. (laughs) So can you take us to 1989 and the origin of Title IX, your company? Where did the idea come from and what did that look like getting started? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I graduated from college and at the time I had played um, intercollegiate athletics at the time, right, I was coming into Title, uh, when Title IX was fully in effect, which meant that um, there were, at least for me, a lot more opportunities than there were girls to fill them. So I played every sport known to women. I, <laughs> all through college, I, I played lacrosse, I played tennis, and, and my great love is basketball. But when I graduated, all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, what? what do I do now? And the thing that I always was my true north was I want something where I have this same shared values and unanimity of purpose that I found when I was competing in basketball at the collegiate level. Um, Now, where do you get that? Um, I thought it might be by coaching. And it turns out I really don't want my living determined by whether an 18-year-old girl makes or misses that free throw line, (laughs) free throw shot, you know. I just don't want that to be my life. Um, So then I actually, you know, really good job experiences are wasted on the young. And I I have to say I am no exception to that rule. I I had some great jobs. I worked for two great coaches um, right out of college, but then quickly decided that that's probably not what I was going to do with my time, my paid work time. Uh, Then I decided I wanted to to be out of the Northeast because it was too cold. I moved out to California. And when I was moving out, I just bought a new tent and I rolled it out the first night. And, it, and in those days, you needed a seam seal tent. So I unrolled it. There was a hang tag on it and it said, the North Face, 999 Harrison Street, Berkeley, California. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go, I'm going to go move to Berkeley and, and, and I'm going I'm to get a job in the North Face. <laughs> um, and through a bunch of strange coincidences and connections, I did end up getting a job at the North Face. I was working there when it was smaller, much smaller than Title IX is now. Its original founders were there. So it was a a thriving and very entrepreneurial business. All of its uh, manufacturing was done domestically right across the street. Um, My wife-to-be was in charge of all of the production planning. Um, I didn't know her at the time. but um, So I worked there for a short stint. And then I got a job at Fisher Mountain Bikes, which is one of 
the first mass production mountain bike companies. And it had just started. Gary Fisher was building what was at the time a family business. There were only about 13 employees. So I went and worked there for about a year. And then I went back and worked in the North Face again. And my job hopping was starting to sort of raise some eyebrows. And, and I also recognized that you know, I, I don't know that I recognized how good all these bosses and these opportunities were at the time, but I think in my heart, I knew that like, mm, if one of these jobs has not worked out to keep me in it for longer than a year, it might be time for me to try something on my own. Um, and, and, and sort of also, if the truth be known, I'm like, wow, if these idiots can do it, then I've got to be able to do it. Now, I'm talking about... <laughs> And they were not idiots, but at 27, right, you know everything. Um, and, and I gained a lot of confidence from working in what were some great brands uh, at, at sort of their beginnings. And I don't know why I got confidence. It was clearly misplaced, but I decided at that point that I would like to start my own business. And, you know, at this time, right, I've come out of college. I've been out of college for four or five years, and there's still nowhere to buy women's athletic apparel. Uh, it just, the market hasn't come yet, right? Because we're still sort of bringing women into sports. Um, but, but I knew, well, I knew that I wanted stuff and I knew that my friends wanted stuff. So that seemed like enough of a market to me. Um, and at that point, I had about mm, fifteen dollars or $20,000 saved up. And so I, I quit my job at the North Face, and I was sharing a, a house. I actually got the garage um, with some friends, all of whom were we were in some stages of startupness. And um, I just got to work trying to figure out how. I figured, okay, there are not enough women to buy. This is laughable now, right? With Lululemon and Athleta and. Um, all of the people in the women's market, sweaty Betty, but that literally there was no one in that when I was starting in 1989, I'm sitting there, I was like, okay, there's no, there's no way there's enough of a market in one place for a women's athletic retail store like bricks and mortar. But I think if I, if I started a mail order catalog, which is the precursor right to the internet, then maybe I could find enough people all over the country. And so that's what I set about doing. I wouldn't classify what I put together at the time as a mail order catalog. I would classify it as a very low rent flyer of sorts. <laughs> um, and it had all of the things that I would like to buy, including um, women's sized basketballs, because they had just changed the size of the, of the basketball for the women's game. Um, I still own some of those women's basketballs because it turns out no one wants to buy those. Um, but one of the things, uh, and, you know, I was playing sports, a buddy of mine happened to be the editor at women's sports and fitness, which was a women's sports and fitness magazine. She hooked me up with some people that were graphic designers and photographers. I used my teammates as, as models and we kind of cobbled this thing together. And then at the very, very last minute, um, the folks at what was then Jog Bra, but now through many different iterations, uh, became champion. 
um, the folks contacted me about, hey, you know, you should really put some sports bras in in this this flyer catalog thing of yours. So I threw some in at the last minute. I threw in a little black and white section and very confidently and naively dropped, I don't know, you know, and I'm sure you talk about this a lot with folks that you interview, but sort of the money piece. And when I was starting, everyone told me, you know, Missy, you have to, you, you just can't even put your foot in the ring unless you've raised at least a quarter of a million dollars. And I'm like, I, I, I don't have a quarter of a million dollars and I don't know anybody that has a quarter of a million dollars. So I, I'm just going to kind of get started. So I had my $30,000 uh, and I was able to put together 30,000, what turned out to be very, very bad catalog flyer thingies, we'll <laughs> say. And um, I dropped them in the mail and then eagerly awaited for the phones to just start ringing off the hook. Of course. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so the phones did not start ringing at all. Um, I think I got, I can't remember exactly the numbers, but maybe I got like 25 orders, maybe. And like seven of them were from people that I didn't know. So <laughs> it was a little bit sad. It was a little bit sad. And, and, but the one thing that was, that I did notice, anyone would have noticed, is that all seven of the orders from people that I didn't know, they'd ordered a sports bra. And so that was kind of my first sort of, I'm a 36 AA. I don't need a bra of any kind, you know, but it, it is shocking to me at this point. I actually consider myself to be a pretty big expert on sports bras because that became the foundation of a very large business for us because turns out the average American woman is a 36 C and solving the support um, of her breast is her number one concern when she's thinking about working out. So that I just, we sold no basketballs at all. And we sold a, a, well, a lot, seven sports bras. So I was, well, you don't have to tell me twice. This seems like the direction we need to go in. So at that point we realized, okay, sports bras is going to be a really important part of this business. Um, and we learned a lot about the other apparel that needed to go around it. And I would say the best part about those early years is because we were one of the first into the business, into this market, we had a lot of suppliers who were looking out into the future and seeing this women and girls market coming up, but they weren't having any retailers ask for that product. So these suppliers would take a flyer on us and they would ship us stuff. And we would negotiate for net 90, net 120, net 150 days. And I would hurry up and try and sell it as quick as I could in hopes that I would sell it fast enough to be able to pay them um, by the time the invoices came due. So we just literally uh, bootstrapped it for probably the first four years. So that's kind of the origin story as it as it were and you so you weren't actually manufacturing any of the apparel nope so you know one of I wish I could say it was my brilliant insight but it was just necessity that when we were starting out I didn't have money to do letters of credit 
or pay for, you know, materials and findings and designers and developers up front and then wait another 12 months until my customers happened to pay me, we had to buy from manufacturers. And fortunately, at the time, a lot of manufacturers, branded wholesalers, were getting into the women's business. And we felt like we could do a good service by curating the best of that. Because they, they were trying to figure it out too, right? They didn't really, what, what, what does this thing called a woman need in sportswear? Um, and, and that was sort of where we came in. And, and then over time, we developed some expertise where we started developing our own product as well. But to this day, our relationships with our branded suppliers, whether you know that's Toad & Co or Patagonia or Prana or Crimson Clover or Wazelle, those are our most deeply cherished relationships and the ones that I kind of feel like is our sort of secret sauce. It's, it's allowed us to avoid having deep relationships with banks, which is a good and a bad thing. And it's allowed us to remain independent. So um, no, we did not get into manufacturing our own stuff until well into the business, probably 10 or 15 years in. Um, and even now, probably one of my favorite parts of the business is finding new, particularly women-run suppliers that are building their own brand and help get, helping them get up and going um, in their businesses. So talk to me a little bit about those first four years. I mean, were you literally just living hand to mouth and every time <laughs> people were ordering, it was covering your next amount to be able yes, to pull out your catalog? Yes, it's just so What kept you going? Bad. Oh, God. Well, you know, I would say then with... Um, at that time, we had these cy- every six-month cycles and those six months would be marked by sort of this cash low where inventories coming into the warehouse mean the office space on the second floor of a building that we put some bins in. The inventory would come in. We'd have to pay the postage and printing for um, the catalog. And then we, we were out of cash, right? Everything was coming in. We were having to put a lot of money out and cash was probably 30 or 60 days off. Uh, so those were the the worst of times. Um, I would say twice a year for the first four years, I resolved to quit. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, it was really, really tough. And during that time, I got some, uh, our suppliers, our suppliers were, have, and probably always will be our best bank, our most trusted um, source for cash and partnership. And, and that was certainly true in the early days. Um, but in those first four years, I also begged, borrowed, and steal from friends and family and anywhere I could get it. I mean, I, I was looking back, I was trying to figure out like, okay, over that first four years, you know, because I know your, your listeners are probably interested in like, well, how do you do that? How do you remain independent? Um, how exactly do you do that? Um, and I wish I had a better memory for it, but I did go back and kind of look over that first four years. We needed, um, at some point or another, the worst we ever were is we were out about $200,000 to a combination of suppliers and friends and family. Um, now that requires a certain kind of growth, right? Um, or, uh, I guess better it, 
allows a certain kind of growth. You know, we're not going to be the next unicorn, um, but but it also allows us a, a great level of independence to sort of choose our destiny as long as our destiny doesn't involve being the next unicorn. So for us, this bootstrapping thing has been both a blessing and, and a little bit of a, a curse. There, there are limits that you have to live within, but I would say that was set in, that was set in motion in those first four years. And then pretty much I remember that the fourth year it was just like, we were so close. And then we had a really good month just before our year end closed and, and we made money. And I, I got to tell you, that was just one of still one of the all time best moments. Like, wow, this, this worked. There are people <laughs> that want to buy our stuff that we don't even know. And they're, they're actually kind of a lot of them. Um, and it was a group of friends and, you know, just, I would say missionaries really. Uh, and we kind of, even up until the time, boy, we probably got to be, a business probably of about 40 million without anyone who had experience in retail, in manufacturing, in apparel, or in business. We were able to sort of bootstrap to that with no one with any experience in doing any of the relevant tasks that we needed to have done. Um, so that little cadre of passionate women was able to pull together a profit in, in the first four years. And no question, one of the high points to this day is being able to, you know, that first profit, I immediately spent it and everybody got a bonus. It was really <laughs> fun and foolhardy too. But that's what you do when you're 31. Yes. <laughs> so have you taken on any fund, external fundraising as you've built the company since then? Or has nope. It, nope. Oh nope. I have not. But I'll tell you, um, all of that again goes back to these, and it, it's, you know, it's the question that's always out there. Um, it's not that we haven't had the opportunity to, it's not that I haven't been tempted to, um, but you know, they say a woman can be rich or she can be queen. And I think, um, I've chosen queen so far. Um, it, it just, and, and, and that's not entirely true because it's, it's not really queen. I just, we have a very good team of suppliers, um, that, you know, I can tell you it, in the last five years, we had a very rough run about five years ago, um, solely self-inflicted, um, which, as my mother says, are the worst kind. Um, but, uh, and we were in a really, really, really tough spot. And I was having to get on the phone with some of our suppliers and ask them to extend terms and let us not play it. And these are some suppliers who are now smaller than we are. So it's not like I was calling up Nike and asking them to help me out. Um, I was calling up people that maybe couldn't, couldn't afford to. And I just remember talking to this one gal, actually uh, out of Colorado, Rhonda uh, Crimson Clover. And I was just like, Rhonda, we, it's tough right now. And I could, I, I really need, I really need to not pay you basically is what I said. Um, and I said, I need, I need another two weeks. And this was probably October, November. And she did not blink an eye. She just said, you know, Missy, we're fine right now. 
why don't you just pay me in January? Because this is a really good time for us. So just go ahead and pay me in January. Not anything about how's business. How are you? Are you going to pay me? How will I be sure you're going to pay me? Let's find an agreement. It was just like, just pay us in January. So I would say that, like I said, those people have been our, our, our banks and, and our best partners. And so it's allowed us the luxury of, of not having to have outside investors. The, the, the downside of that is, you know, there's, um, there's something to be said for having outside investors only in that they may, may not drink your Kool-Aid. Um, and, and that's probably where we have suffered is not having enough of an outside voice saying, hmm, is that really right? Should you really be going this slowly? Should you really be being this conservative in your growth targets? And we, we probably could have used a little bit more of that kind of a voice um, at, at various junctures. But, you know, I guess it's like my mom says when I quarrel with her child raising um, theories and practices. She goes, you know what? I'm just not going to argue with the results. So So I guess that's where I am with this. It's like, I'm not going to argue with the results. We may have lost some opportunities, but, but, but I'm happy with the results. I like your mom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I like my mom a lot too. <laughs> um, so as you think back, I mean, you, you, you just kind of mentioned this kind of don't, not arguing with the results, but in, in that kind of first period, uh, you know, first four years as you're setting up the company, is there anything that you now, when you look back that you actually wish you had done differently? <sighs> you know, that's a really good question. And I am rarely someone with regrets. I I just have to be honest with you because I feel like, you know, I think about that worst moments, best moments. A lot of times when I look back on my worst moments, they were sort of, uh, they were the fuel for the best moments, right? So when I look at some of the things that I make a ton of mistakes, yeah. I did, but in those mistakes was sort of the seeds for the success that we got following it. So then, so if I think like that, then I'm like, ah, if what would I have done differently? Um, there in the early years, honestly, I would say not. In the later years, yes, there are some things I would have done differently, but I, I just don't think I knew enough. Um, to be, I, I was just so in the moment and just reacting. Right now, was the pinball. It's like asking the pinball if there's anything they would do differently. It's like, <laughs> well, no, man. I've just been beat around by the bumpers everywhere. There's nothing I would do differently. I couldn't do anything differently. I would say now I feel a little bit less like a pinball. And I would say, yes, um, in the past 10 years, are there things that I would have done differently in the past 15 years? Yeah. But those early years, I got to tell you, did I make a lot of mistakes? Hell yeah. Um, and a lot of really painful mistakes. Um, everything from hiring the wrong people to hiring too many people and having to lay them off um, by growing too quickly and having to contract, growing too slowly and missing opportunity. Um, I, every mistake you can, you can name, we, we made it. Um, but I don't regret them. Uh, and I, don't, I wouldn't do them differently. 
Well, then I'm, of course, bound to ask in the last 10 years, if you can walk us through one of these times where you've done like a a worst moment or a mistake that you really wish that you had done something differently. Yeah, 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 (laughs) that's, that's, yeah, that's hard. Um, well, I'll, I can start with a, a personal one that people may be able to relate to. I will say one, like just the clear worst moments to me that I just rarely, when I think about it, I, I just can't get past that. I really can't find my sense of humor about it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and that was, I'll just say something as deeply personal as my first maternity leave. Um, you know, I, I had my first daughter when I was um not young. I was 37. And, you know, I remember, you know, very long protracted labor that in the middle of it, I had some buddies bring an exercise bike up to the hospital, (laughs) park it in the top floor of the parking lot. I snuck out of the hospital and got a good, good, quick sweat on and then went back in and finished the rest of my miserable labor that resulted in a C-section. Um, but then, uh, you know, we were at home and um, my wife and I were both at home for the first couple of weeks. I'm just like, you know, this is, this, this, this mothering thing, it's, it's kind of simple and it's kind of easy and it's kind of boring. You know, I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just like, and then things started to heat up at work and I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm getting back in. I'm, I'm going to go back to work. I didn't have any plan at all. I was just going to kind of see how it went. Um, and I would probably went back to work. Um, I think maybe Gilly was four weeks old. And I am not recommending this to anybody. I hope they can learn from my own mistakes. So we were in this really crappy workspace. It was like a warehouse kind of converted to some amount of office and I found this little thing up and it was just a built-in mezzanine that had a door on it, no windows, no nothing. And I turned that into my daughter's nursery only because there was, there was a door and I could close it when she was crying. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's just so bad. I mean, and then I I got a nanny to come there and she was just like, sometimes because we're in this very, it's not, it's not a nice park to go to. There's nothing. There's just them in this room. And I want them to be near because I don't feel like I've done a good job with my maternity leave. So maybe she just stays with me at work. It'll be all okay. And it really wasn't. It was just a disaster. I mean, I think everybody's memory from that time was Gilly crying all the time. (laughs) Just so, so bad. Um, so I, I would say that was a pretty big low for me. Um, and I, and I think it is, and and then to quickly move to sort of the upside of it one, I think I did better with my son, but I also think it's just made me much more realistic about what, what that first year after a child really can look like, um, and that, that it, it, you really don't want it to look like what mine looks like. I just recently <laughs> uncovered a picture of Gilly. It's like literally, it's an office chair. It's one of those swirly around that roll office chairs. <laughs> She's splayed out on it asleep, 
but like half of her is just about to fall off and there is no adult in sight. I don't know who took the picture, <laughs> but it's just, it's just so bad. I mean, if I ever get to the point where I want to delude myself into thinking I did a better job at managing my first maternity leave, I look at that picture. I'm like, Oh boy, I was, it was as bad <laughs> as I thought. Um, so I, I hope that your listeners and you are, are, are better at planning maternity leaves than I was in that first one. But that was definitely a, a worse moment for me and, and sort of right at that nexus of the business and the personal and, and recognizing this was not my first child. It was actually my second child. My first child was Title IX. This is uh, unbelievably timely for me as a human. Uh, I am 37 weeks pregnant and uh, heading out next week on maternity leave. And I just wrote an article about why I'm taking my full three months as CEO and why, yep. why I'm modeling that behavior. Uh, and it's been really hard for me to imagine taking that time off. And every single woman I've ever asked about it has said their one of their number one regrets as a CEO has been not taking enough maternity leave. Um, yep. That's right. And you will not, you will never look back and say, wow, I took too much maternity leave. There's absolutely no way you are going to say that. So it's kind of a no brainer, but we all still make the same dumb mistake. Yes. <laughs> you know? No, but this is, I feel like this, I'm like having this conversation with you right now for a very specific reason. So that when I start reaching for the computer come July, yes. uh, I'm going to be like, totally. no, remember Missy. Well, and let me just tell you, and maybe moms are going to kill me when I say this, but at first it is a little bit boring. I'm just going to tell you that. It's a little bit boring. You know, it's not the same like adrenaline rush, you know, on email. It just like go, 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 go in and out of meetings. It's not that. It's a different rhythm. So because you're used to being in the rhythm that you are where you tell me that only 10% of your job is the podcast part of it, then I'm like, okay, you know, this, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be a little bit bored. I, uh, I I have the Women's World Cup to keep me company all of June and into July, so I've been pretty excited about that. But yes, after that, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> um, well, thank you for sharing the kind of one of the worst moments. Uh, you did mention already kind of hitting a profitability after year four as a, one of the best, but I was I have to ask also um, if there's another best moment that you want to share. Well, I think, I think just as um, you and I were talking, um, I would say, the, the, again, this sort of link between best and worst moments, certainly um, a more recent worst moment for me was, um, you know, I'd say around 2012, 2013, 2014 in that area um, was a real opportunity for me to learn how to be a different kind of leader, i.e. not the kind of leader that needs to jump in at every sign of trouble and fix it with a wrench. Um, that's the kind of leader I am. Um, and I had an opportunity to shift that. And I have to say, I, I failed at it. I didn't shift that. We didn't um, develop the senior team that we really needed. Um, the team that we had in place along with me completely missed Um the shift to digital and social marketing um, and, and put the company at grave risk. Uh, and, but, and you're, so what's the best part of this? I'm going to tell you the best part of this. <laughs> um, 
So that was the resulting phone call with Rhonda where I needed to ask to hold on to money for a couple of extra months. And the result of that was that we ended up going out and searching for a new president who came in about three years ago. And we have, um, he has, um, and I would say we have, uh, the two of us together have shepherded in um, a real shift to digital and more importantly, a shift to a real senior and independent managing and operating team. And, you know, no one is more surprised than me that the president of Title IX was a man. Um, but I have to say, it, it has been, it is, you know, our head of marketing is a woman, our head of merchandising is a woman, our head of IT is a woman, everybody's woman. Our, our president is a guy named Johnny Lynn. He has five sisters. So I don't think there's any other man on the planet, maybe, that could do what he has done. <laughs> but I will have to say that going from that very low of having to ask one of our suppliers uh, to borrow money in a time when I know she really probably didn't have a lot to spare to going to now where I feel like we're on a good, strong growth trajectory with a really awesome senior team that is really developing as senior executives. It, it's not a moment, but a series of moments that has been deeply gratifying over the last two years, I would say. Uh, kind of building on that, um, I'm curious if you've ever, what, what is the best piece of leadership advice that you've ever gotten or that you like to give? Uh, well, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I would say, and this is not necessarily leadership, but I do think it is related to it tangentially. Um, the best piece of advice that I have gotten that I give and I continue to give myself is just get started, right? <laughs> like don't study it. The more you study it, the harder the problem becomes, the more expensive it becomes to fix it. So that just getting started and, and that goes with leadership. And I would say that for me as a leader now, it is, I am Mostly what I find my job is, is giving people the confidence to act in the face of not having all of the information. And I think particularly for women, um, that is difficult. I don't know why, but what we have to do as women leaders is get increasingly comfortable acting when we don't have all the information we need. And that's just like, and I, I I don't know how else to practice that, to do that, except for just to practice, practice, practice. Because by the time you have all the information you need to make the decision, it is too damn late. You know? Um, so, so I would say for me, it's one, get started. And, and then sort of the corollary to that is act before you have all the information you need. Um, and, and those two pieces will get you pretty far, I would say. I love it. I, my team has uh, before said of me that part of my job is just running around pushing people into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly right. And, and it's very tricky, though, right? Because I, I'm, I'm imagining if you're like me, um, you enjoy that being pushed into the deep end of the pool. Right. I, I always think about it as like, oh, you know, it's when you're out there in the waves and you feel like you're getting tugged under, you're getting tugged under. But, you know, if you just keep thrashing, eventually your head will pop up. 
Um, and then a buddy of mine who is a little bit more experienced surfer than, than I am says, well, actually, you can just relax and float out and swim back in, Missy, if you wanted to. <laughs> you know? I'm like, yeah, good point. Damn good it. point. <laughs> um, so they're two very different styles, right? And I realized that for a company at the size and maturity we are now, um, there's a shift that I need to make uh, around pushing people into the deep end. Um, that that they need to be willing to get into that deep end maybe before they're entirely ready, but not at the time when I'm necessarily ready. Um, and, and I think that's been a real challenge for me as a leader is to say, this is when I'm ready for us to go into the deep end, but if we go in now, it's going to cause great harm to the organization, great and unnecessary harm to the organization. So I, I'm constantly having to balance sort of what I need and what the organization needs. Absolutely. Um, I love it. Um, so curious for you right now, what is the most important thing in your life? Well, I'll, this is just going to sound really um, maybe shallow, but I'm going to tell you because it's what's happening even as we speak. Moving <laughs> is the most important thing in my life. I mean, and I say that as a mother who loves her children more than life itself but I don't think I could love that. Like right now I'm sitting in my home office and I have been pacing the entire time we have been talking just like pace, pace, pace. I got up this morning and I went out on my bike and I got back in here. I get on phone calls. So for me, the most important thing is moving. And, and that's sort of in the metaphorical as well as the actual sense forward motion, um, both physically and metaphorically. Um, and then secondarily, I'd say in that movement that I got to make, I got to make a difference, you know, that, that really matters to me. It's, um, making money, you know, and obviously this comes from a place of either always having what I wanted or not needing very much. I don't know which, um, but making money has just never been that compelling to me. Um, but making a difference and making some meaning, I would say that that's a real close second to moving, I would say. And the two are probably related. Mm, I love it. Um, and then my final question, uh, what is giving you hope for the future? Oh man, you just come to our offices any day of the week, come in midday, see all of this group of millennials, the much maligned millennials <laughs> in, in our gym that's at the center of our office, seeing them like just going all in and then sitting back down to their computers and just reimagining the way the world should be. I mean, I, I what gives me hope is just, I, I've, I love the millennials. I, I, I don't, I, I hate even talking in those terms, but just the, the optimism and can do. I, and it's like, yeah, you know, we were fixing some problems when I, when I was growing up, the problem was peak oil and we're going to run out of coal. Well, we fixed that problem. <laughs> we, we just created another one. Now y'all are going to have to fix this one. And I have a lot of confidence that they'll do it. So, you know, I, when I look at the group of women that we have at title nine and, you know, sometimes when I'm being particularly cranky about either the job that I am doing or have done, I look around and I say like, wow, well, this is the group of people that are working here and they're pretty awesome. So we can't be doing that bad. So I, I think for me, what makes me optimistic is, is the people. I mean, it's, it's what makes the whole enterprise worth it. And I think it's, it's 
what will move us forward and not always the perfect and most direct route, but at least in the general right direction. A huge thanks this week goes out to Missy Park and the whole team over at Title IX, as well as our incredible production team at StoryPop Media and the whole Conscious Company Media team. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show and be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media Production.